The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, we're joined today by a debut novelist whose new book, The Portrait of a Mirror, retells the myth of Narcissus with a healthy dose of Oscar Wilde. She's here to talk about her background, her career, her work in the field of recursions, Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray, Ovid, and how art, immortality, narcissism, relationships, and selfies all intermingle. Buckle your seatbelts and adjust the mirrors. Natasha Zhukovsky, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. It is Jack Wilson. It is. I am Jack. It is I. Tis I. Jack Wilson, your lovable lunkhead. Although lovable might be my word, not yours. Lunkhead certainly is your word, as we heard last time. Lunkhead. Lowly lunkhead. I actually got an email on this from listener R. Dear Jack, it said, I'm paraphrasing, Dear Jack, a lunkhead isn't the right word for you, but the Germans have a word. Well, of course they do. Germans, that's become a cliche, hasn't it? I'm sure there's a word in German for this. That's what we say in English, in our jealousy, our envy of the German language for smashing all those words together and coming up with something. Some word... I think there's a word in German for this. And then we hear there's a word in German that's about five words all put together like, mm, I don't know. You might say, oh, that's so poignant. Look at this stuffed animal that has only one eye. And someone says, I bet the Germans have a word for that. And it turns out they do. The word turns out to be something like ein Eiball teddy bear stoffen. Something like that. So, I got kind of excited when I read this first part of the email. No more Jack Wilson, comma, lunkhead. I was going to move up. What words did the emailer have in mind? Maybe something that means sad but kind-hearted podcaster? Or ridiculous but ultimately harmless talking person? What would be the German word that would say it all, that would sum me up? I couldn't wait to go on with that email. I could barely breathe. And then the next sentence was, the word in German is Dummkopf. I mean, Dummkopf. Is that, is that really, is that better than Lunkhead? It means dumb head. That's the Germans not even trying. That's, that's them at their, at their worst. That's just scoffing. Dumb head. You're dumb. You're stupid. Oh, that's not enough. Okay. Well, your head is dumb. To put it finely, to be precise, it's the kind of bare minimum of what can be dumb, isn't it? He's dumb. He has a dumb head. Well, thank you, listener R, for shedding all that light. Okay, moving on. We've got a great show today as we're Continuing our hot streak, we're up to five in a row. Five women from four different continents 
today has a bit of a Russian flavor, you might think, from her name. And there's a nice little literary surprise embedded in that name that we will hear from her when she arrives. But our guest today is not Russian. She's American, very American and very, very smart. She patented, oh boy, well, you'll hear all about that. In fact, I'm going to save that. I'm going to save you from some of that. I'm going to save that for now, and I will save you from it later. Here's what happens later in our conversation. I'm going to jump in and try to do a little more explaining as we talk about recursions. It's easy enough. Imagine something that refers to itself and goes on forever. A man holding a photograph of himself, holding a photograph of himself, holding a photograph of himself, and so on. Gets smaller and smaller. That's a recursion. Here's a good joke. If you search for the word recursion in Google, it replies, did you mean recursion? Get it? That's a Google joke. There's a kind of power that recursion can have. You can harness that power and use it. Computer programmers understand they use recursions to solve problems. And here with Natasha, I stumble my way through it, trying to get at what it is that she did when she was working as a consultant and she invented a solution exactly what problem she addressed with that patented solution. But I think the important thing for our literature-based discussion is to think of our old friend Narcissus. This is the Ovidian myth. Now, Narcissus was the one who rejected Echo and fell in love with his own reflection. Imagine a boy looking at himself in the water, or imagine the reflection in the water staring back at the boy the two are frozen in place, transfixed, staring at one another and in love. They're so in love, it leads to death. Nothing is better to them than to be in that moment. Is that something you can identify with, dear listener? I'm sure you've, you've never done that, right? And never would. But... Do you go through life seeing things outside of yourself, or do you basically see yourself in others? When you look at art, do you see art as something objective, subjective? Is it there for you? Is it there without you? Is it there for its own sake? Do you view it because it reminds you of yourself, or because you like how it makes you feel about yourself? What is your relationship to art, and what is your relationship to your fellow human beings, and what is your relationship to that body that hauls your spirit around, and what is your relationship to that spirit that travels around inside your body, for that matter? Those are some of the ideas we'll explore with our guest today, Natasha Zhukovsky, after this. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. 
Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Natasha Zhukovsky, who is an innovation strategy consultant who now writes novels. Based in Washington, D.C., Natasha previously spent five years working at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Along the way, she happened to invent a recursive estimation algorithm that received a patent, and she's here today to talk about her new novel, The Portrait of a Mirror, and Oscar Wilde's classic novella, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Natasha Zhukovsky, welcome to the History of Literature. Thanks for having me, Jack. Okay, so let's start with your background, which is pretty fascinating. Uh, but let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town called State College, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I yeah. lived there until I was 14. Um, the, if you, the ah means that you yep. must be familiar with <laughs> Penn the State. Pen Pennsylvania yeah. State University. <laughs> yeah, my right. father was a professor there. Uh -huh. um, an emeritus now. And I lived there until I was 14 when I got a generous financial aid package to uh, attend the same boarding school that my father attended on, mm. an, on an enormous financial aid package in Connecticut. Oh, right. Okay. So then you left home and, and it, you lived there for eight months a year or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would I would be there. Yeah, starting starting at age fourteen, we were there. I was there for four years. Yeah, from September to May, and you know there would be holidays, et cetera, to go visit the family. But yeah, start started living away from home pretty early on. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, how did in this childhood of yours, how did books and reading and literature fit into the picture? I mean, extremely predominantly, I would yeah, say, um, right. as, as you know, growing up with, with an English professor. And my parents met at Penn State. My father was my mother's romantics professor. Uh, that's romantics with a capital yeah, R. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it became romantics with a lowercase r, right? Um, you know, they were very, very liberal, very literary, you know, mostly happy childhood. In many ways, it, it actually wasn't unlike wild childhood, I think a bit, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe a little, a, a little, a little tighter on the purse strings. Um, I've written about this in the past some, but I think the best way to summarize my childhood was a surfeit of education in the absence of money. Right. Uh, so yeah. very, very, um, 
rich in literature and always, well, not always, I should say, when until until I was, you know, out of college in my 20s, always yeah. things were a little tight. <laughs> yeah. You know, that it kind of reminds me, I, this is a, a bit of an aside, but I'll, I don't think I've told this anecdote on the podcast before. When I was traveling, I met this French-Canadian couple, and they had been on the road for, I don't know, 20 or 25 years. I met them in Tibet. And they, uh, the woman said to me, I'm following him wherever he wants to go, but I told him two things. Before we leave, I want to pay off the house, and I want a room full of books. And she said, whatever happens to us out here, whether, you know... <laughs> Whether it's good or bad, I want to know that I have a place I can return to where my books are all paid for and I don't need anything else after that. I can just go and live the rest of my life and, and read the books. And I thought, what a way to kind of invest your money in your future. You know, it sounds like I like it. Yeah, it sounds like your parents maybe had a little bit of that as well. Like it's it's uh, who needs other material things as long as we have money we can spend on books. I, I don't think I don't think they ever properly paid off the house, yeah. but we definitely <laughs> definitely had a lot of books. Um, I would say in our in the fifteen hundred square foot house, there were probably somewhere between eight and twelve thousand books <laughs> in it. Um, when my father was getting his PhD at Oxford, he basically spent every spare penny um, at used bookstores, and he has an extraordinary library. Right. Um, and I was I had access to most of it. My parents read to me often. I was obsessed with Anne of Green Gables as uh, a child, yeah, Harriet yeah. the Spy, Ramona, Little Women. My father and I, when the Emma Thompson, Kate Winslet, Sense and Sensibility movie came out, we went to see it together and I was obsessed with it. He started reading me Jane Austen mm. when I was about 10, right after seeing the movie. And got me a beautiful Oxford third edition for Christmas. We had read all of them by the time I was 11. He, he, and he taught Austin on the graduate level. So he could answer every question I had about Regency England, how the details of entails worked, the difference between a gig and a phaeton. It was mm. an unbelievable gift that he gave me. Yeah. His time, I mean, not the books. And truly, truly priceless. Wow. And so... Would you say that your parents were kind of guiding your reading and saying, oh, if you like that, you should try this and here's the next one you should read? Or was it more, there's the library, feel free to go in and take whatever book off the shelf that interests you and, and then we'll support you whenever you have questions or feel free to come to us? You know, I, I think it was both. I, yeah. I, I well, let me ask you, let me ask you this question first. Are you at all familiar with Thomas Love Peacock? Ah, Nightmare Abbey man. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Shelly's friend. Well, my father is was, is a leading scholar on Peacock. Oh, so everything right. kind of started with Peacock. The first author that I am aware of remembering was my father's friend Peacock from, you know, as soon as I could make memories and walk and talk, I was aware of Peacock. My father was working on an enormous two volume uh, edition of letters for basically my entire entire childhood. I, it, published when I think I was 15, and he'd been working on it for 10 years before I was born. Wow. So we, we talked about, Peacock was just omnipresent in yeah. in my life, but all, but also, you know, the whole Shelley circle, because Peacock was the executor of Shelley's will, yeah. and Keith, so 
I, there was definitely some guidance around, particularly starting with the romantics and the, the, the poetry that would just be, he had memorized and would be referenced in casual conversation. And because my mother took his classes, you know, they'd, they'd, uh, his, well, one class, the romantic poetry had, had made a huge impression on her and she had many lines memorized as well. And, so mm. Ode on a Grecian Urn would be discussed one night. Yeah. That, that's definitely, you know, how I first came into contact with Wild would have been, you know, through just a random epigram here or there. Yeah. You know, people reading uh, your biography uh, would probably say, if, if they read the paragraph that's available, they would probably say, what is a mathematician doing writing novels? And instead, I'm going to turn that around and ask, how did such an obviously born novelist and literature, uh, someone as steeped in literature as you were, how did you wind up getting into mathematics? Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I'm in mathematics per se. I would more say that I couldn't cut it in literature. Ah. I, I tried. I, I graduated in 2008 into horrible recession. Mm. Yeah, I had majored in English, but I had then decided that I really wanted to be a curator. And so I applied to art history PhD programs. And I'm a huge snob and only applied to the best ones. And I didn't get in anywhere. Mm. <laughs> so I, you know, tried a different route into museums and got into museums on the business side yeah. and um, found that museums weren't run super well because they were run by art people rather than business people. And I thought, <laughs> well, if I'm really going to do this, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to business school. So the Met was, you know, great in helping me, you know, sponsoring me and, and helping me pay for, for business school at NYU. And I, I came across consulting. It's ironically, it's an extremely creative job. Mm. I've, I've found it to be very enjoyable for the most part. All the yeah. same skills that make me a good writer and novelist are the same, are the same ones as make me, have made me a good consultant. I, I no longer work with clients. I've now, um, I've, I've switched over to, uh, to the corporate function side. Yeah. I was good, really good at math as a kid, but then I hit calculus and that got hard and I'm lazy and I didn't really understand that there were other branches of advanced math. And what I'm actually really, really good at is discrete math. And, uh, and, and I, took, I took no math classes in college whatsoever. It was part of the appeal of the University of Virginia was that I wouldn't have to. Um, so it really was a, uh, an accident that I moved back over to, I would call it more the business side of things than the mathematics side of things. Okay. So let me, I, I really want to ask you about consulting and novel writing. But before we do that, let's talk about the recursive estimation algorithm, because that sounded to me like something, I think I had a mistaken impression of you as someone who could get a mathematics PhD or something with that kind of title, but maybe I'm misunderstanding it. So what is the recursive estimation algorithm? Well, I, I mean, I'll talk about the math a little bit in abstract because I think that's probably the, the easiest way yeah. to, to get at the, at the root of it. So... Mm. Let's pause there. Natasha tried so hard to explain this to me and I was so eager to learn, but let's be honest. I'm just not that bright. Dumb cop as some might say, stupid head. <laughs> some well-meaning emailers. Jack, it's okay. You're trying, you sad little dumb cuff. 
and Natasha. Finally, it was clear that her invention was beyond me. So we moved along, which we will also do, dear listeners. Resuming where we need to resume, picking up our conversation about Oscar Wilde and Narcissus and this new novel of Natasha's, we get into some wonderful discussions and maybe my cup is a little less dumb after talking to Natasha. You'll hear all that after this. The problem is, is the math is really, really, really complicated. <laughs> Let me explain recursion as I understand it. And then you tell me yeah. if that's right or wrong. And this is going to be a very simplified version. Mm-hmm. Okay. So basically, as I understand recursion, it's a kind of uh, computer program, for example, might refer to its own code in order to solve a problem. It's taking a a big complex problem and it runs a routine or sets out steps that will address a smaller part of the problem. And then it's able to refer back to itself in order to apply that on a bigger scale. Is that kind of getting at it? That's, I mean, that's certainly one, the mathematical definition. I've tried to come up with it because recursion exists in so many yeah. uh, aspects of our world. I think that a better definition personally is any form of self-similar embedded repetition. Uh, so yeah. you, so Matryoshka dolls are a fabulous example of recursion. The, you know, stories within stories. So for instance, there's mm. a whole section of my novel that uh, is, you know, a fake Wikipedia chapter on recursion that goes through all of the different instances. Fractals are recursive, where, which you see, you know, see in math. I, you know, m- I think mammalian, human mammalian and m- m- mammalian reproductive biology is recursive, right? Yeah. You have the uh, um, pregnancy is extremely recursive, right? So when, when I'm thinking of recursion in this novel specifically, I think maybe the best motif for it is that of standing in between two parallel mirrors Mm. where you get the two surfaces of the mirrors and the nested images that recur are recursive and actually form then infinite recursion, even though practically speaking, you can only perceive the first few instances. Right. And let me tell you, I once worked for a nonprofit uh, software-based company. And there was a moment where uh, we were having trouble and the programmer's hair was on fire. And the C- uh, the COO, who was a an old software pro, and he uh, tended not to be as alarmed as other people, was kind of like, oh, well, you know, well, sounds like there's a problem. We'll just address it. And that's what happens with with computer code. And, and basically the answer that came back to him was, 
we have an out of control recursion. And he immediately yeah. said, oh, okay, I get it. Five alarm fire time. Uh, stop everything. We got to fix this. And it was basically yep. this this computer was, this program was going to eat itself or, or just get hung up on yeah. itself. And it was going to bring everything down. And I think this would be a good one that probably a lot of listeners have run into. If you've ever been working in Excel and had a circular reference error, that's recursion. Mm, right, right. And then... It just goes and goes. Well, why don't we jump then to uh, making art about art, which is a little bit like uh, what we're talking about. I read an interview where you discussed wanting to make art about art in the style of Ovid's Metamorphosis when you read it. And I'm wondering, was this, were you always thinking that you would write fiction? And, and what about Ovid did you find appealing? Well, I didn't know, I, I hadn't come across the idea of recursion when I was first reading Ovid uh, in, as an undergrad, I took a course called Art and Myth with Professor Paul Borowski at the University of Virginia. It was, you know, the defining course of my life, I'd say. No, nothing mm. has you know, inspired me more. And uh, it, was, it was an art history um, senior seminar, 12 person kind of class where each week we would read a chapter of Ovid's Metamorphoses and look at all of the related art and in that process try and develop connections between text and image and text between image and image and you know between text too. We, we, there would often be a you know, secondary reading that was inspired by some of the artwork that we were going to look at or, or Ovid um, himself. And I think the things that made me fall in love with with him were first the recursive sort of self-referential mm. quality mm -hmm. of the metamorphoses. There's, you know, that there's stories and stories that there's, you know, weaving of paintings of, of sculptures of, you know, the art is all woven together. And, you know, when, for example, when Narcissus is looking at his image in, and, and he's frozen. Ovid says that he's no more moving than any marble statue, right? So all of the art kind of bleeds together and you lose yourself in, in kind of the, the, the infinite. Yeah. He goes so far back in the recursive layers that, that it starts to defy comprehension as recursion does, right? We can only perceive the first few instances before meaning just kind of collapses on itself, right? Yeah. And I, I loved, I loved that. And uh, the second thing I think would be um, what what we would call Ovid's leggereza, right? His lightness, almost modern sense yeah. of irony, cheeky self-consciousness. Yep. He strikes this balance between that lightness with gravity. He's funny, but he's also serious. He actually embodies a lot of the paradoxes that Wilde comes to be really famous for. I think mm. that they're tonally, they are so so similar and have, and, and I, I mean, I, I don't know a ton about, um, you know, what, what Wilde read, but I mean, he, he references Narcissus enough that it, it's pretty clear that Wilde was, was very taken with Ovid. Yeah. Okay. So Wilde, most people I think come to him in one of three different ways, either his plays or his prose or his life story. Do you remember the first time that you learned of Oscar Wilde and what was your entree into the wild world? I, you know, I thought about this, Jack, and I, I can't, re I can't remember. He's always been there. <laughs> He's always been there. I, yeah. I, I can't remember a time when I didn't 
know who he was. My father probably said he could resist anything but temptation while stealing a French fry from me or something. I mean, I'm like, really, I have no idea where where the first time I heard. I, I do think probably the, the movies that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s mm. with Rupert Everett, there was the an ideal husband and the importance of being earnest. That was probably my first exposure in a, you know, in a more substantive, yeah. systematic way. And then I could, did take a fan de siècle class in college where we read a lot of wild Salome. Um, I, I'm certainly, I read Dorian Gray in school at least once, if not twice and, and loved it then for sure. I, but I, I will say, I don't think my true wild obsession kicked in until full blown adulthood when I started writing the portrait of Amir and saw how similar, you know, in reading it again, specifically the picture of Dorian Gray, how akin his project was to what I was trying to do. Uh, And I mean, to give you some sense of how much I felt extra fell in love with Wild as an adult, I I literally named my son Dorian. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) He will have people all of his life probably meet him and wonder about that yeah and i mean well we got and he has a he has a four and a half foot tall giraffe named oscar wilde so he Uh, really has a story for them (laughs) nice i met someone once my wife and i were at a wedding and there was a guy sitting there and uh his name was araby and my wife and i our jaws just dropped and we said James Joyce the, the, from the Dubliners. And he just nodded and said, yeah, my parents yeah. were big fans. And you could tell that he was almost, uh, he was a step ahead of us. You know, he knew what we were wondering about before we even asked the question that it was, uh, uh, but it was a, you know, a great name. And I was excited to meet him and, uh, and hear the, the background and, and the love that his parents had for the Dubliner stories. Well, and you are talking to an Anna Natasha, as in Anna Karenina and Natasha Rostov. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, so it runs in the family. This is... uh... I mean, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. I know, I mean... The, the thing that I'll, I will have to tell him as he gets older is he's, he, you know, named for the work of art, which I think is one of the greatest novels ever written and not for a very tragic character. Yeah, right, right. OK, so the, what were the themes that you were seeing in Dorian Gray that you were also tackling in the, the novel that you were writing? I literally think that in the 19th century, Wild publisher could have legitimately marketed Picture of Dorian Gray as a modern reinterpretation of the myth of Narcissus, which of course yeah. is what uh, my novel is being right. being billed as. Right, and Dorian Gray is, has supernatural elements. It's more of a gothic novel as opposed to just a novel of manners. But there's certainly novel of manners elements to it, and the witty banter, and the three main characters all in their own ways, enchanted me. I'm trying to remember what Wilde said about them, that Lord Henry was who the world thinks, you know, who the world thought he was, that Dorian was who he'd like to be, and that Bad was, you know, who he, who he sees himself as. And I mean, I have approached my novel in, in much the same way. I think my, my four main characters are, are all pieces of me, but not none of them perfectly me in, in, the, same, in the same way. They're all kind of you know, the worst versions, which I think we might be able to say for our, the characters in, in Dorian Gray as well. 
it was the idea of this novel about art, the Wild's preface. Mm. Was very influential to me. I kind of a, a born esthete myself. Mm-hmm. You can, there was lots of peacock symbolism all over my house. I will tell you, <laughs> growing up, <laughs> I, I, I think you know all of that. The sparkling, the sparkling society, the, uh, high society setting, the the ideas about art, the characters that are you know, with one foot in and out of real life, and the way that art and life are mirrors of each other. So I, yeah, all of it really. Yeah. The preface famously talks about making art for art's sake. And you have this background in the museum world and the visual arts as well. And what is it about art that feeds into the concept of narcissism? So I think this is related to immortality. Yeah. To quote wild in the wild struggle for existence, we want to have something that endures. We want to live forever. Yeah, we want to live forever. And that is at least one of the reasons that I think human beings create art is, you know, goes back to the handprints on the cave walls. It's leaving something behind in our necessarily finite lives that feels bigger and longer than us. And I think that 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 enterprise is pretty inherently narcissistic. And I'll bring this a step further, which is probably more to do with my novel than Dorian Gray, is that for the last 12 or 13 years, we've effectively all been walking around with Stygian pools in our pockets. Mm. The rise in narcissism that we've seen correspond with you know, the rise in selfies and the ability right. to create and control and capture and share your own image on the Internet is it, it's almost like a you know, commoditization or a democratization of the creative impulse in art you know, reaching for immortality. And yeah. so, you know, there's so, there's so much written about how selfies are superficial and you know, Wild has a ton to say about superficiality and depth. I, I think that, the, that the, the problem of immortality is really, really closely related yeah. to why narcissism and art for art's sake go so hand in hand. Yeah. Well, there's another aspect of Wild, though, and, and this takes us into the world of selfies, I think, because it's one thing to say, I want to live forever. And so I want to create whatever, a painting that will live forever or or a a statue that will live forever or a novel that will live forever, because that will be, it will be my mark on the world. It will, even though I know that I must die, it will live forever. Wilde also seemed to have a component of, I want to live young forever. I want to I want to yeah. I want to be beautiful forever and that seems like the selfie impulse. I feel like I can share the idea of wanting to live forever through children or through creative works or something that will outlast you. But that doesn't necessarily mean I want to be physically beautiful forever. That seems a little different. Yeah. But it seems very narcissistic to say that, like to fall in love with your own image and to freeze in that position. And Wilde seems to want to freeze, whether it's him or or someone young and beautiful that he's close to and in love with. Just the idea of never getting older, never even taking a step forward toward death, that seems to be something that fascinated him or compelled him to explore. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I agree. 
Yeah. And, and, it, and it puts another layer on the narcissist myth itself, of course, because narcissist was at the peak of his physical youth perfection. Right. Yeah, and, right. and so it is, it is, it's not just any selfie. It's that selfie at your peak. Maybe that's what becomes kind of sad. Maybe that's why selfies seem so sad. It's one thing to be afraid of death and want to get around death, but it's another thing to feel like you're fighting against the passage of time and your own aging process and and feeling like, well, if you're going to want to put your mark on the world and if you're going to want to live forever, why not do some good? Why not volunteer at a hospital? Why not create a building? You know, why not do something that will improve the world beyond your own lifetime? Why does your fear of death mean you want to pretend like you're never going to grow older? Why try to catch an always fleeting image? Poor, credulous youngster. What you seek is nowhere. Yeah, right. Okay, let's talk about your book. Uh, the Portrait of a Mirror, which uh, revisits the myth of Narcissus with two couples. And they've got, it sounds like, four different personalities. The four of them all have different relationships with one another and different uh, connections here. How much of Narcissus, how did you apply the Narcissus myth to four different people? Yeah, so I, I kind of imagined these four characters. I don't know if you've, if you've read American psycho and are familiar with a really famous business card scene where all of the, you know, where Patrick Bateman and his, his investment banker buddies are all comparing business cards and they're saying, Oh, this one's silly and rail typeset on bone. Right. And and all of these business cards look the same, but, (laughs) but these guys are, are, you know, are noticing these tiny minute differences between them. The idea being that nothing highlights difference quite like, homogeneity. And so the four main characters, I wanted to tease out that idea. How similar could I make them while still um, making their differences hugely important to one another? And so they're all, each of the four main characters is a narcissist and each one is a mirror you know, of the other characters and they all see themselves in each other uh, and confuse their love of one another for the love of themselves. Uh, that is, you know, you know, definitely what I was, was going for with the love square, right? That it, it, it again, with to the, the recursion theme, right? That they're, every time two of these characters are standing in front of each other, it's, it's like a parallel mirror with these infinitely smaller images kind of recursively fanning out behind them. Um, and all of their interactions are, you know, what I like to call interpersonal recursion, right? They're, they're thinking less about what the other person is saying than how what they are saying is being interpreted. Yeah. Another, another good corollary I like here is if you've, seen the movie, famous movie, The Princess Bride, the scene where Wallace Shawn and the man in black are <laughs> arguing. Yeah. Oh, yes, oh, over yeah. the poison, right? And, right. and, and well, it's like, you know, I, I can't choose the one in front of you because you'll, you know, and going through all of these psychological justifications to, and, you know, of course, they're, they're both poisoned in the end, right? Yeah. So I, I thought about I thought about that scene a lot. I think about that scene a lot. <laughs> you know, I used to tell this joke when uh, I was working on a hiring committee, and we were getting all of these resumes. 
And it just seemed like, you know, if so, let's say someone went to, uh, I don't know, let's say they were in the army and then, you know, someone would apply and they would have an army background and the person would say, oh, well, I kind of liked this one because I thought they would have discipline and, and you know, be really good at following orders and they've proven themselves in, in challenging context or something like that. And it would be like they would be applying their own background to it. Uh, or yeah. if they went to a, a very elite university, they would say, well, you know, this person went to Harvard and that's a wonderful school. It means you really worked hard to get in there. And they would be talking about themselves. But you would also find that sometimes people would be looking at an absence in their own background, like maybe they didn't go to the elite university. And so they would say, well, you know, this this person went to Yale. They must be really smart. I mean, that's really hard to get into. I got rejected from them from there. And, you know, it was kind of like that. And I, I kind of ended up thinking what these resumes should do is have, uh, they should be two-sided. And the first side should be you know, all of the experience, education, and everything that we see on a resume. And then you should flip it over and just have a mirror. And people, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because that's what people were yeah. doing. You know, they were looking at every other person on the page, but all of it was refracted through themselves and their own understanding of how they got to where they were. And if they felt like they had limitations, those were the limitations they were trying to correct. And if they felt like they had strengths, those were the strengths they were looking for. And it was, it was really uh, striking to me how much our own selves informed the way we look at others and, and relate to others and uh, evaluate others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the you know toward the end of the portrait of the mirror, getting getting near to the climax of a pivotal scene where the two main female characters, Diana and Vivian, are are talking to one another. Diana says to Vivian, "We all see ourselves in one another. It's generally the chief thing that we like about them." Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've talked so much about the themes and kind of the art for art's sake and, and the way that this would play into the myth of Narcissus or, or the parallels with Oscar Wilde. I don't want to lose sight of just what the book is like. And it's also described as a modern novel of manners. So would you say this is, are we back in the world of Jane Austen and Anne of Green Gables and you're, you're doing some real storytelling here and the relationships are uh, things people can follow the ups and downs of and so on? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I would say probably that the, the end result is closer to a Henry James or an mm. Edith Wharton. Uh, New York Magazine compared it to, you know, said Edith Wharton would would like the characters that she she give them the rubber stamp. So mm. I, I would say closer there than to Austin. But Austin is kind of how I got there. The same way maybe that James and Wharton arrived at, you know, their their styles and their you know psychological take on on relationships, reading Jane Austen very young. She's I, what I like to say is I, I think that she's developed into the narrator of my conscience, mm. um, which is good because on the other shoulder is Wilde, who's, you know, always telling me to do everything bad. <laughs> but he's the devil, right? <laughs> you, need, you, need, you need prim conservative Jane Austen to uh, kind of balance him out a little bit so I don't get into too much trouble. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's look, it's 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 a very it's a very psychological novel about relationships, about two wealthy, attractive couples in a you know a love square, a pretty classic plot. Again, again, also similar to Wharton or James, a 
No, a modern high society novel, right? These are very, very privileged characters who are wrestling with their privilege because it's fashionable to to wrestle with their privilege, right? Mm. And so, you know, we get we get some some satire around, you know, how to, how out of touch they are. It's deeply informed by those very, you know, the psychological 19th century novel of manners where love and sex has real stakes to it, right? And I mean, no one is a, a better example of that than Wilde and, you know, what, what high stakes Victorian sex was. And that was actually one of my, you know, challenges in writing the relationships in the novel, in revising not just the myth of Narcissus, but the 19th century novel of relationships and, and sex comedy, how do, in a much more permissive society, you create that same sort of tension? And of course, you know, what I landed on is it has to come internally. What is it that is you know, making these characters who have so few actual restrictions on them that are you know, at the height of privilege, why do they resist? you know, the things that they want and why do they give in to them? Mm. Okay. So we have three more things to do. The first one is our honorarium. We're pleased to be able to offer a two-part honorarium to guests on the History of Literature podcast. We would like to buy you a book of your choice. That's the first part. And we also want to donate to a charitable organization of your choice. So which book would you like us to send you? That is very kind. I would love to receive Zach Sala's debut novel, Let's Get Back to the Party. I think Oscar Wilde would approve. And, you know, after <laughs> COVID, it seems seems appropriate. Okay. So we will send that your way. And thank you. Which charity should receive our support? The LGBTQ Freedom Fund. Again, mm. I think yeah. Wilde was, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, not big into charity. He thought it perpetuated the systems, but I think I think he could get behind the, the yes. LGBTQ Freedom Fund. I think so. He's a and sort of one of their patron saints, I would think. I would think so. <laughs> okay. The second thing I wanted to do, I mentioned we were going to get back to this, uh, and it's going to feed into the third thing we're going to do and the last thing we're going to do. But we talked about working as a consultant and the connection with being a novelist, and I want to take a stab at why you see uh, those two things as being parallel. So here's my guess. Sure. What's fun about being a consultant, it seems to me, is going in and seeing a world and taking it all in, observing and noticing how it works and how it doesn't work, and having as your job learning all about this little subculture, whether it's the company, you know, whether it's how they're how it's working mechanically and and how it's how it's spending its money and 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 allocating its resources or whether it's about um, how the management structure works and why people are efficient and happy or why they're not and what things could be done better and if you're coming in at such a high level but also having to get down into the weeds at the same time and really think about uh, all of these people and all these human relationships and how they all fit together and, and how it all works. And it strikes me as being similar to what a novelist might do when they chew off a piece of the world to start ruminating over and and trying to decide, um, well, how do these people in this society fit in with one another and what are they doing here and how are they spending their time and their lives and are they happy and what what can they be doing better and what did they regret doing you know, worse and what forces are there that are keeping them from being their best selves? 
Is that uh, is that how you would describe it, or did I miss the boat here? Well, I, I would say yes and, right? So, okay. so absolutely, you're correct. I agree with everything you said. But I would also say in a just far more literal sense, the communication skills you need as a consultant, mm. there's literally, we literally have training sessions on storytelling. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was invited to one recently where I was, I was, you know, learn how to be a compelling and relentless storyteller. And I had to chuckle a little bit, like, cause it was like a week <laughs> before my novel was coming out. And I was like, I, I you know, I, I think, I think I got this one guys, but you know, that's not always true, right? Like we, I always have things to learn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you get better, you get better in these things. So, so yeah, the, I mean, the executive communications and, and how you, how you tell a story, which details you choose to highlight, which you choose not to data can be used to tell almost any story. Mm. It's how you interpret it, how you frame it, the, yeah, the, the frameworks you apply to it. I mean, framework development is, is big in both you know, designing a narrative and you know, understanding the, underlying data to solve a problem at a company. Yeah. I think everything you said is, is right, but I would add that, you know, some of just those really basic communication skills are, 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 are very, are, are relevant to both. You know, I just did an interview with uh, a German artist and it hasn't been uh, released yet, but it will have come out before this interview does. And so listeners will probably be familiar with it, but uh, it is... <laughs> With the German artist, and she made the point. She said, you know, one of the things I really love about American lectures is the way they can incorporate stories, that they will involve stories in any kind of lecture. And she said, you know, if there's an American who's giving a scientific lecture on pack ice, there will be a story in there about a penguin. And she said, in yeah. German, she said, in Germany, we would not do that. You know, it would just, just wouldn't be done. You'd be talking it about pack ice. About that, pack yeah. ice. <laughs> no, I mean, because look at the, this persuasion is, and maybe in Germany, you have more regulations, more regimented rules. I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what the difference is, but I think so much in American culture depends on being able to sell the story and sell the narrative and get eyeballs on it, right? Mm, um, yeah. You've become, as a society, very, very um, interested in what other people are paying attention to, what other people are looking at, and that starts with, with a hook. Mm, okay. So our final thing, we have a surprise bonus question. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. You are a consultant for a high-powered and extremely unusual firm. One day, you're given an assignment. The mayor of a large city has assumed dictatorial powers and wants your advice. When you arrive, he says he's come to believe that his people would be happier if they were not so narcissistic. He has two ideas, and he wants you to pick one. His first idea is that he will get rid of all the art in all the museums. Everything will be replaced by mirrors. That way, he says, people will see the folly of staring at themselves all day. They will long for the days when they could appreciate not looking at themselves. His other idea is to banish all mirrors and other reflective surfaces. Even taking a picture of oneself will be strictly prohibited. Once people can't look at themselves any longer, he reasons, they will stop being so narcissistic. You view both of these ideas as very flawed but your assignment is to choose the least worst option, and you at least manage to persuade him 
to adopt his idea on a one-year trial basis. Which one would you like to see put in place? No art and only mirrors in all the museums for a year or prevent everyone from taking pictures of themselves or seeing themselves in mirrors for a year? I mean, definitely the second, prevent people from... (laughs) taking pictures of themselves. I actually, I, uh, to be honest, I'm a little bit disappointed that my bonus question is so easy. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> I thought that one seemed a little, uh, I thought you might think that that one was a little uh, authoritarian. Yeah. I mean, I mean, certainly, but can you imagine a world without art? I mean, personally, I would much yeah. rather live in a world where I couldn't <laughs> see my reflection and can only, can you imagine yeah. if everywhere you looked at stuff was just a reflection, it would be like, I mean, it's it's one of the few things that could push our, you know, our society farther in the direction that it's already going right. in. Right, people would probably decide they preferred it. When you already go into, you know, when you go, you can't go into a gym without that happening. Yeah. You can't go, there's so right. many places where you can't, it's hard to go in an elevator. I mean, the I don't know if this comes out of out of Versailles. Mm. All of the the tricks with the mirrors that the you know the architect put in there to make spaces look bigger, but yeah, there's mirrors everywhere. We we have enough yes. mirrors. I have like a phobia of mirrors and I've had it for, I guess, 30 years. And I have not looked at myself, my eyes in a mirror since then. And I I think it might be a fear of recursion because something about seeing my eyes looking back at me just terrifies me. And it's been a real problem for me because the world kind of expects you to know how you look and to comb your hair correctly yeah. and all of this. And for me, I always have to either squint or I turn out the lights and I, I have to do it in the dark. Or sometimes I, I find a, a not real shiny surface, like a dull surface that gives me enough so that I can brush my hair in that. Or I roll my eyes up in my head. It's really... a, a I'm prattling on kind of long here, but it, it really no, no, is. You, uh, oh, it's just a, a thing I guess I've always had. I think you're very smart. Um, I, I think that one of the great secrets to happiness in this lifetime is distance and flattering lighting. Mm. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's right. Okay. And the funny thing about your book, we didn't even touch on the title, but the portrait of a mirror itself has a kind of embedded recursion aspect in it. Most portraits are not about mirrors, but of people. And uh, to have a portrait that's of a mirror is kind of asking the, the portrait to start looking back at itself and on and on. And we're back in the world of uh, the infinite regression. Yeah, and and also, you know, Wilde says in Dorian Gray, this portrait would be to him the most magical of mirrors. Mm. But I also, you know, I also see that, you know, it's, it goes back to the four main characters too, as you know, they're portraits of they're portraits of mirrors themselves. They're each both a narcissus in the pool, reflecting one another to the point of recursive incomprehensibility. Right. Well, I tell you, this there is a side of this conversation that has made me very depressed because uh, it, it seems I'm like... I'm <laughs> sorry. The end of my book is very sad, though. Like, you know, like, like Dorian Gray, I think oh, the course. end is horrifically sad. Yeah, of course. There's no other ending that could be but this kind of uh, tragic result because it's such a it's such a depressing idea. But I was going to say uh, the thing that excites me about it is that 
when you create art about it, it it gives it this positive spin. It lets us see these things afresh. And so that's why I'm excited about reading your book. And the book is called The Portrait of a Mirror, available now at bookstores everywhere. Natasha Zhukovsky, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. My pleasure. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. See what I mean, people? We have some better cops now, don't we? Smart cops. Or at least smarter cops. I need to learn some more German. My dear departed Swiss grandmother would approve, although she would probably just shrug her, her shoulders and then trounce me in Scrabble in English, her second language, while complaining that she never went to college. So how can she be expected to compete? My poor wife showed up once at grandma's house. Grandma Rosa's house in this crucible of Scrabble. A scrucible. Cruciable? Is that what you call it? Crucible of Scrabble? She was playing, my wife, then my girlfriend, she was playing like most normal people do, just putting down words, doing her best, smiling at the table. She had no idea that my grandmother was a cutthroat Scrabble player and played for blood. That was Grandma Rose. When she wasn't baking cookies, she was kicking some Scrabble ass and taking names. And at one point, my girlfriend, my wife now, my girlfriend at the time, played a word. And it happened to leave me a nice spot on the board. I was the next player and I played a triple word score. And my dear Grandma Rose, the kindly Swiss saint of a woman, wrote down my score with her sharpened pencil writing so hard that she broke the lead and then she got up to sharpen it and she looked at my girlfriend and said I wish I had a girlfriend who went before me and gave me a triple word score Ah, Switzerland may be geopolitically neutral but do not mistake that for their position when it comes to Scrabble at least when it comes to the colorful board of my childhood our thanks to Natasha Zhukovsky for joining me. You should check out her book, The Portrait of a Mirror, which has a very cool cover, very smart, just like Natasha. Maybe Thomas Love Peacock should go onto our list. Maybe that's an October episode, a little sneak preview for you. October will be here before you know it. We will also be donating to Natasha's charity, the LGBTQ Freedom Fund. Do check them out. And after that... Please subscribe to our humble little podcast. Apple changed their program again. So many of you might not be subscribed. What a pain. We've got some good shows coming up too, which you will not want to miss. Our thanks to all of you for doing that and for being here. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>